Sonic Statesman.com. So uh, let's say hello to everybody. It, it's our Sonic Talk number 63, uh, which is going live on the 18th of October 2007. First of all, uh, let's have the first in, which is PJ Tracy from Minneapolis. How the devil are you, PJ? I'm fantastic. And yourself, Nick? I'm pretty good, too. It's uh, it's a crisp and sunny day here, but uh, cold, but yet invigorating. So I'm feeling kind of good. Uh, I've also got Rich Hilton from Connecticut. Um, I imagine you're getting some autumnal colours. Has the uh, has the weather broken since the sultry days of of AES? Uh, the weather has broken, but the colours have are coming late this year, and they haven't really arrived yet. So how was your gig? Uh, gig was great. Quite enjoyed my time in London. Uh, did... In your absence, get to see a couple of other friends and uh, continue my research into English beer. Ah, excellent. And, of course, we've got non-Eric from uh, Berlin, where I imagine it's probably a couple of degrees colder than here, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe I'm Mm, just... Nope. We have a sunny day, and it's about 17 degrees Celsius. Lovely. Which is great. Yeah, we've been having lunch outside. Good Lord. Lunch. Mark Tinley, um, with us this week. Uh, Couldn't make it last week. Um, Hello. I thought it. I thought it was going to be just you and me at the beginning there, but we seem to have a everyone now, don't we? Almost? We certainly do. Yeah, um, uh, all us except for Dave. Hope Dave gets well soon. Um, he's been unlucky with a couple of colds back to back. It's just the way it goes. You named it, Mark Tinley, as ear, 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 which is I correct did. because <laughs> there's a chap called Stelios Arcadiu who uh, basically um, has had an ear made of human. Gu- cartilage grafted onto his forearm and there's a picture of him on the bbc website i mean it doesn't work but it's a very peculiar concept he's actually what he's thinking about doing is having a microphone implanted in it so other people can use his ear to to know what it picks up i mean i would imagine a lot of rustling if you're wearing long sleeves but uh, i can't think of anything practical is there anywhere you'd like to have an ear that you don't currently have one i love the idea of the microphone in it my partner sent it to me and I started reading it and I thought, this is very odd. And she said, oh, you're going to love this. And when I got to the part about the microphone, I, th- I thought that was fantastic. Um, anywhere I'd like to have an ear where I don't currently have one, I guess. I, I guess it would have to be the other end of my body down by my feet somewhere. At work. To hear stuff that was going on down there. Maybe just work ears and, and, uh, and home ears. You know, you could keep your, keep your home, your work ears separate so they don't get damaged when you're not using them. <laughs> PJ <laughs> one on the top of your head maybe oh wow that would be cosmic wouldn't it yeah aim it straight up into the sky and then you can you know listen for the little green men that are <laughs> supposedly orbiting the planet yeah I wonder whether we'd be able to have or maybe one on the back of your head earmuffs <laughs> would look pretty silly wouldn't they you'd have to have three earmuffs if you had it, had it attached to somewhere else on your head Hans how about you can you imagine a use Absolutely no use, but I think it's a great publicity stunt. And if I would ever need to uh, promote myself or anything, I I pick up the idea and maybe stick uh, a nose on my chin or on my foot. I think I'd rather go for the tattoo myself and then I could at least cover it up. I mean, if I need publicity that much, I'm not sure. It just, I suppose it's no worse than maybe surgically enhancing one front, one's frontage, but uh, it just, it, somehow it's, it seems kind of fairly extreme. And the guy, he's like 61. He's a, he's a performance artist. Okay, so he's promoting himself. He is promoting himself. He does say um, it's taken him years to find a surgeon, a surgeon prepared to perform the operation. I wonder if the surgeon's getting some good PR out of it or not. I don't know. Rich, can you see any great 
advantage to something like this? Uh, I was fairly amused and horrified simultaneously. <laughs> poor, poor, poor Stelios never quite got enough attention when he was a boy, I guess. Um, and I wonder if I need him to give me a hand. Shall I ask him to lend me an ear? Yes. Why not? <laughs> Did anybody not- follow the link to the, um, the Sonic Body exhibition? No, I'm afraid not. Oh, it says in the um, article that there's a chap called Mr. Francis Wells, who's a surgeon at Patworth Hospital, and apparently he's helped an artist make a map of the sonic body, which looks like an interesting thing. It's on in Brighton in about a week's time, I think. Oh, uh, you're going to go and see that, aren't you? I do fancy going to see it. Yeah, yeah it looks yeah. really interesting. I used to work at Real World for a while with Richard Evans, and um, w- during the making of the sort of CD-ROM um, Eve, which was a kind of big art kind of stroke music project that Peter Gabriel did back in the day when CD-ROMs were the thing. He had a lot of oh. artists coming coming over. You know, there was Helen Chadwick and, um, um, oh, I can't remember the names of them all, but there, one of them was Orlan, who was um, a kind of French performance artist who used to modify her body through, through surgery, and she had horns, we were told. And we heard she was coming to the studio that day, and we were really excited and kind of quite scared at the same time. So we, we'd hear that she was at lunch, for instance, and we'd sort of run up to the lunch place, and she wasn't there. And then we, and then we kind of, oh, she's over here. And we, were always, we sort of wanted to see her, but we didn't want her to feel like we were kind of like two schoolboys excited and looking at a freak, which is exactly what we were basically trying to what we were doing. <laughs> and it got to the end of the day. We were working very late. It was a winter's night, November, I think it was. And it got very late, and... Um, I gave Richard a lift home. We got in my car and we thought, oh, we'll never see her. Started the car, turned the lights on, reversed out of the parking space. And as I did, the, the headlights sweep round and she stood there in the dark, caught in the, in the headlamps of my car on this sort of windswept, dark and stormy night, standing there in a very long coat with, with her horns. And we she just she went, really ah. had horns. Well, they're not. They were sort of like little bumps, really. I remember reading about a man that wanted to be a dinosaur. And he's he's wanted to grow a tail for years and years and years and been trying to get somebody to graft on like a silicon tail. I think he's in America. Um, but I can't remember any other details about, about right? it. <laughs> <That sounds laughs> I about know it. that guy. He lives right down the street from me. Wow, that's Your not joke, a coincidence. <laughs> I, w- I want to grow an audio interface and a USB connector. Well, that would be pretty fun, <laughs> wouldn't it? Right. I don't know. This whole body as canvas for art thing uh, is weird to me and is popular as this sort of thing may be over here in general. It's not very popular in my house. And, and witness, the, I, I am obviously in the minority on this, though, because of the extraordinary success of the tattoo and piercing business sure. over the last 25 years. But um, I kind of like to leave it the way I got it as much as possible. Anyone got a tattoo, then? I have, yeah. I knew it was going to be you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I want to get more, but I just don't want to upset my mum and... You know, I'm 44, and I I feel sort of sort of feel that you know if I get more tattoos, she'll have a go at me or have something to say about it. But I have got yeah. I've got one very which I I still sort of find embarrassing now. I don't know if anybody remembers the Frankie Goes to Hollywood poster, which had a very fit looking guy and girl with their arms interlocked back to back, and the girl was sort of leggy and wearing a basque and stuff. So I've got that. The Frankie Goes to Hollywood Relax record cover tattooed on my left shoulder. Is it big? Uh, not very big, no. Oh. I, a friend of mine is an artist and he scaled the whole thing down for me. 
I think I want to invest in shares into uh, companies that are developing tattoo removement, removal technologies, because I think it's going to be um, in demand when all these people that now got their tattoos become old ladies and old men. And the tattoos really look weird on their bodies. I, I kind of, I quite like the idea of having a tattoo design that will kind of develop over time as you kind of change shape it kind Ooh, of turns into something else you know i can't think of anything that it could possibly be but i quite like the idea of it you can i'd get, like um, to take a tattoo off of someone else and have it grafted onto my back wow really that's weird yeah that is pretty weird yeah you sound like the bloke out of silence of the lambs pj that's not that's not normal <laughs> I, i'm sorry i'm not gonna quote that film. you um you can get tattoo ink that disappears over time now so so that you have a tattoo and then after about four years it starts to fade and after six years it's completely gone well there we go why hello this is john van eaton checking in and as the uh Pro Tools technician for Nine Inch Nails for the last three years. And I mean to tell you, on uh, the last few weeks of this tour, my best friend has been Sonic Talk. I've listened to every episode. Every issue is of interest to me. And your sardonic wit and crazy humor is one of the only things in the world still making me laugh and smile. So I can't say enough good things. And it's been more than my pleasure to... uh, check every episode out and i'm just going to be sad that i only get one a week now i wish you guys good luck cheers and keep on bringing the good work peace there we go that was nice wasn't it doesn't it make you feel warm inside gosh (laughs) i think he's doing what i did with lost when i first discovered lost i had to watch all the episodes Really? Do you think actually he's he, he's uh, he's just uh, displaying his obsessive side? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> so well done, everybody. We're all great. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much, John, for listening. And um, this one's for you and your lot. won't play anymore because i'll probably get into trouble although they are ostensibly giving it away if you decide you want to not pay anything for it um it's a pretty bold move though isn't it um just to kind of recap they've released their their album they're out of a record deal uh, radiohead and they've released their album for download only you go to inrainbows.com and you can buy the download now you don't have to there's no price fixed you can buy it for nothing if you choose but you still um you or or a hundred million pounds if if you can fit that many noughts in the uh, in the in the boxes provide provided it's just a sort of very interesting way of music distribution. Does anyone um, have any thoughts on it? No, it was my understanding that they're actually looking for a distributor next year. They're going to release the same CD in hard copy because they believe that about seventy five percent of their listening audience isn't even aware of this, isn't even aware of the fact that they've released this on the web so i think they're they're going to rely on back-end cd sales once they release the hard copy version of the album uh-huh. isn't there a isn't there a, a special version for 70 dollars yeah um, you can buy the box set as well which i think is about 40 pounds yeah which they'll post to yeah. you i think i read that 80 percent of uh, the, the the people that downloaded the uh, the, the album did not pay anything well, that was. I think they they were holding as a Radio One, which is a UK national sort of uh, pop station, as BBC. Um, 
had a kind of exit poll, I suppose. Uh, I think it wasn't very scientific. And, and up to, I think it was last week, they'd not paid, uh, that their 80% had not paid anything for it. But it's kind of interesting because it makes a whole lot of numbers game. Because if, if 80% of people hadn't paid anything, but that 80% included, you know, 80% more people than would have listened to it in the first place, then it sort of doesn't, do you know what I mean? It doesn't necessarily matter. So it's kind of, it's all about the numbers, I suppose. Mm. I think uh, it would be interesting if they ever release uh, the exact numbers. That would be very, very interesting. But the, surely the most important number is how many dollars they made from it. I, is it, though? I'd just like to say I, I did pay for the album. How much, Nick? I how paid, much? Uh, what would it be? About 12 bucks. Oh, I wasn't, wasn't going to buy it anyway, um, but I bought it because I wanted to see what the process was for this for this podcast. So a bit less than I would have had to pay for it on iTunes, I suppose, is what I paid. Yeah, I think it's um, uh, that's a lot of money that you paid for 128 uh, quality. That uh, now with the current uh, speed of internet connections and the amount of storage we have on our hard drives, I think we no longer need to to uh, really uh, listen to music in the crippled format. And I would love to pay that money, but I wanted to uh, uh, download the 16-bit uh, 44.1k file. Why not? Interestingly, at the other end of the scale, Madonna's just signed another deal for $120 million for a three-album deal. According to sort of uh, Wall Street or Deutsche Bank, they're saying um, she would need to sell at least 15 million albums per release. She has a three-release deal, and that is, achievement is unlikely at this stage of her career. I think that's funny coming from a banker who's a passing comment on the creative output of, uh, of sort of a pop <laughs> artist. But, uh, um, but you know, it's, it, it's obviously shaken up it's it's sort of shaken up the markets in both ends. I mean, are the record companies likely to be kind of getting a bit stressed out by the fact that Radiohead are doing this? Um, one question I have uh, on the Madonna deal, from what I heard, is that she signed a deal with somebody that's more of a concert promoter, and that that includes revenue from her concerts. Is yeah, that that's true. Right. Or? That's right. I mean, so that makes the figure much more likely, doesn't it? Oh yeah, because sure. her last uh, what her last tour. In- I know I'm going to botch this figure, but I want I want to say it was up over 300, 300 million in revenue wow. on her last Something tour. Huge. Something huge. Yeah, some she's huge gonna sum. Recoup, she's going to recoup that relatively quickly. Yeah, no trouble. I think Madonna is usually one of the biggest one of the biggest tours, so I, I think she'll have no trouble. I think that this is the wave of the future for for artists like that signing deals with the concert promoters and throwing the album in as a as a lost leader for promotion because oh, no. she's only sold two million copies of her last three albums or some some figure like that now these are such spurious <laughs> statistics but somewhere in in that range and so no promoter worth their salt is going to sign on album sales alone but she can she can make it up and in, in, in tour money Surely if you're working on the basis that your albums don't really matter, then after a little while, people won't want to come see your tours because you haven't made a good record for ages because you're not concentrating on the sales of that. So it's driving a different, you know, the, the, the thing that's driving your kind of creative output is a different medium. Do you think so, though, Nick? Because I, I'm wondering if it's not going to actually free artists up to do things that they, they've been afraid to do in the past, you know, maybe to, br- to break some boundaries or to you know to to evolve you know possibly that that an artist might feel more free to explore a different side of their you know of their musical output knowing that they don't have to rely on the sales of the record that they can just sort of try to get it out there you know ubiquitously across all all formats for free to get people to come to their shows 
Well, that's kind of scary because if you listen to Prince's last record, if that's a um, a reflection of what he's playing live, and he's if you're breaking new boundaries with people and they're not used to that being your sound, and they come to one show and they hear something completely different, are they going to be hooked? I think it's great that people can go in, in different directions which aren't completely dictated by record companies and stuff, but they've still got to hook listeners and listeners. You know, your average layperson isn't a musician and is only going to be hooked by simple melody, which is why the pop music market is the way it is. Mm, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, what I think is it's going to be hard for the, the smaller and mid-sized bands to really uh, make a living out of the live business because I think that only applies to the really large acts. Large acts, they, we've seen the rise in concert ticket prices and a, a kind of a boom in the live industry but at the same time um, the, the small venue uh, live acts and the, the, the mid-range in that market that's totally disappeared at least here in Germany I think. This is all very well and good for bands with massive brands but if If people are looking to kind of make a living, I mean, obviously this is much more than a living out of um, the touring side of things, then that means people are going to have to do a lot more touring. Do you think maps we're going to go back to the kind of 50s and 60s days when you'd get the kind of the, the Detroit Roadshow and the, you know what I mean? And the kind of all the acts kind of touring at the same time. So you'd have the big bus with kind of five or six bands on it and they'd all be playing one night, an all-star kind of lineup. Rich, um, how is it from your perspective? Well, first of all, as regards Radiohead, I hear the album's very good, so I do want to check it out. And uh, I, in uh, MP3 form, I'll pay them a little bit, and then if I like it, I'll buy it for real. Um, as the live thing, um, we've done the package tour thing. I lovingly refer to them as the traveling disco flea circus. <laughs> and they're always highly enjoyable to do. I don't know uh, the numbers. In fact, I don't really know the numbers on our band either, you know, so I don't really Not have sure. any yeah. real, uh, real foundation for my comments, um, except that I love doing it. But I, I think that, as uh, Hans says, there's a shrinking middle class in that part of the business where you're either just starting out struggling and you don't care if you make any money or you're playing, you know, like big tours, but that in between thing uh, culturally has all but disappeared from our from our lives and uh, the places that we used to play when we were younger are no longer supporting live music. Quite often, it's been replaced by DJ culture. Yep. What's that? I'm going to have to mute for a second as the washing machine suddenly comes. Oh. <laughs> I thought that was an ominous commentary. I thought you were about to do a donut in the in the on a monkey bike in the in the kitchen. I'll mute for a minute. Ah. Well, it remains to be seen. It would be fascinating to know what the numbers are, like you say, for the Radiohead thing, and whether it has a wider message, um, you know, whether more people are going to start doing that. It could be backlash against Apple's monopoly, seeming monopoly, uh, on uh, the download music business, because the, the deal it, it ain't that great. I mean, you're never, I know, it's from what I understand. With it's iTunes, not a, I mean, yeah. Yeah, for the artist. I sold some stuff on iTunes, and the last quarter I made one pound seventy-five. Rocking. <laughs> well, there you go. Here's on. Well, I, I, I think you, should buy the, you should buy the Radiohead album with that one pound seventy-five, Mark. I think. There you go. People, I think, are beginning to sense a futility in selling music according to the current model, recorded music, and so they're using the recorded music, as PJ said before, as a promotional tool in order to support their 
vastly revenue-grossing live deals. It's such a scary prospect, because, I mean, it takes a while to make a record. You know, I mean, if you think all I'm actually doing is making an advert, it just... I can't... How how will the artists have the motivation to kind of put the effort and the finesse and the crafting into into something that might take them six or eight or months or longer to make if they're just being considered like that? Well, you don't have any trouble going out there and finding people who still think they want to get a record deal. And from what I understand these days, record deals include the record company owning part of your... And, and, and perhaps as much as half of your live uh, revenues, including merch and everything else, until you're recouped. So yeah. there's a sort of indentured servitude, life yeah. on a bus for <laughs> as long as it takes. And, yeah. no, you, and no, you can't release that second record because you might cut off the revenue stream kind of yeah. approach to the whole thing. And it's, it's, and, but yet you can walk the streets and find people left and right who say they want to get a record deal with a major label. I, I actually want to get a record deal with a major label. Can I have There one, you go. Please? There you go. <laughs> yeah, you could buy a new washing yeah. machine. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you could get a record deal with Service or Hot Point or something. Maybe they'll be branching out into it. <laughs> I'm wondering if, uh, if artists like Beck aren't kind of pointing the way towards um, you know, what you were, uh, resolution to what you were talking about, and, and Trent Reznor, for that matter, Nine Inch Nails, where they're sort of thinking of album as process, and they're releasing portions of it or all of it to their fans to remix, uh, releasing portions or all of it to different remix artists to remix, combining the remixes of the remix artists and the fans as a version 2.0 album, releasing a second version of the album as a hybrid you know, DVD with high-resolution right. audio and video on it. You know, having several iterations of an album that keep coming out over the the life of an album. You know, the the eighteen month, the three year cycle between between albums until something else comes out. I suppose that sort of you know it helps you figure out what to do, what to throw on the DVD release and the single formats. And it's it's that it's that age old problem where you got kind of you you chose your ten tracks for the album, but then you need five tracks to put on a single. You know, or you know the game industry they release mod uh, tools so that. Uh, yeah. game, gamers can modify and put their own version out and that usually keeps a game alive for a long time. I don't know if any of you guys ever heard of Half-Life. Half-Life 1 and 2, you know, there's a constant stream of mods keeping the, the program uh, alive in a way. Oh, I see. I think that's an apt analogy, um, Hans. I think that some artists are really embracing that sort of that model for, for their records. And I think that it seems to me, I mean, who, who knows how it all come out in the wash, but it seems to me that this um, sort of artist as process or album as process and, and sort of getting a, a fan base involved in, in the culture of the artist and the day, not, if not the day to day process of making an album, sort of the month to month or six month to six month process mm. of, of making and modifying recordings is going to be the new way to keep those those Maybe. things alive. I, I can't they... see that working for everybody because I mean, you know, I buy an album because I like it and I couldn't do it myself. I don't actually want to be part of a democratic music making process. I want to buy, you know, the attitude of the white stripes and the sound of the white stripes or whatever. You know, I'm not interested in participating in that. I, and I think that works because I, I think Nine Inch Nails particularly have a lot of musicians as their fans so that can work for them and maybe it won't work for everybody else uh, there's another question that occurs to me is that how long will we 
Uh, continue thinking in terms of albums anyway because really the album is is a format that has been uh, developed because of the limited um, amount of material that you can place on a cd or on a vinyl record in the days of the internet does it still make sense to think in that dimension or shouldn't we as musicians reconsider our release strategy and why not just release two or three tracks or two tracks or maybe even the MySpace limit? I think it is five, five tracks or yeah. something. Maybe that's a new album because that is the amount of songs you that you will publish. <laughs> right. That's an interesting one. I mean, or, you know, it's kind of almost in a weird way going back to singles. So you just you just kind of you throw enough of them out there. Isn't that on iTunes that there 80% of the people are only buying, uh, cherry-picking the tracks, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's quite fascinating. Rich, have you, have you got, do you think that might, might be where it's going? It's a really interesting observation there, Hans. Um, well, an album was a collection, a book of individual uh, platters, each of which contained two sides. And it was a means by which you could... Uh, get a bunch of an artist's work out there at one time. So I understand that from a uh, marketing model that albums have shifted in definition from that, obviously, to uh, what became the LP in the late 50s. And then, uh, and then now we've got CDs, which doubled the length almost or you know, added 50% to the length of those. And that, that became sort of reasonable and customary. And now maybe he's right. Maybe it's a five-song MySpace uh, music page. I don't know. Um, I think that artistically, it, you, that like with writing, you just don't. You don't just have short stories. You have short stories. You have novels. You have longer works. Um, and we fortunately have the technology to be able to support the distribution of all of those. Um, uh, as far as the commercial market goes, it always has been singles dominated, and I suppose will continue to be, especially given the current marketing models. It may just be that we're at the sort of early stages of yet another kind of shift in, well, all, almost everything. You know, that, you know, not only the marketing, the, the the actual product itself, the way that we listen to music, the way that we buy it, the way you know, all of that is kind of our points of references are just shifting. Well, I've got a lovely optimistic turnaround to this whole discussion. If you'd like me to take it there, yeah, why not? Well, the other night I had the privilege to go to a concert with my family to see something called the Global Drum Project. And the Global Drum Project is uh, for unbelievably great music, uh, percussion musicians joined on stage by a gentleman uh, named Jonah Sharp who runs electronics and computers and appears to be running Ableton Live on stage. And they play pieces that combine interaction between the percussionists and the percussionists and the electronics. And it was a really fascinating and, uh, I thought, forward-thinking use of the, the capabilities of Ableton Live in a live setting where you had these extraordinary percussionists who would like let things break down and loops would get created and then the guy would be feeding them back into the mix so that the actual percussionists could be then improvising on top of the structures that they created. It was pretty darn interesting and uh, sounded great. And at times it had as much to do with, say, a Tangerine Dream concert texturally as it did with a, a percussion show or what you might expect from one. Yeah. And uh, that kind of forward-looking and uh, really stretching and merging of creative, creative use of technology and all that stuff, it was just, I thought, it was a great night for me. I really enjoyed it. 
recommend it highly. Right. What were they called again? The Global Drum Project. It's Mickey Hart from the uh, formerly of the Grateful Dead. Oh. Zakir, Zakir Hussein, the world's probably greatest living tabla player. Uh, Giovanni Hidalgo, probably the world's greatest living congero and uh, just uh, all-round man about town. And a Nigerian fellow called Sikiru uh, Adipoju, who plays talking drum like I've never seen it played before. I, I think Mickey Hart is a really, really cool musician, and I've been a fan of his for quite a long time. There was something he did about um, 15, 20 years ago, which was drumming at the edge of... Magic. Washing machines, maybe. <laughs> Sorry, it doesn't stop. Um, yeah, drumming at I the really... edge of magic. This is obviously an in-progress um, kind of story and situation, so um, we will see what happens with uh, Madonna and with Radiohead and uh, other people who choose to take that one. Sonic Talk, sponsored by Yamaha Music Production. Producers of the world's most popular digital mixing consoles. Accurate professional studio monitoring systems. Incredibly realistic and portable digital stage pianos. The versatile motif range of music production synthesizers. And the latest N-Series digital mixing studios. Featuring the cleanest signal path and full Cubase AI4 integration www.yamahasynth.com Sonic Talk Hello there, it's uh, Ian Webster from uh, Crackly Software. Can I just say how very much I've enjoyed listening to your podcast. Um, something I'd be quite interested to uh, perhaps see you cover sometimes in the future if you haven't already covered it is where you think the uh, virtual instrument market is going um, in terms of is it stagnating? Uh, are more improvements coming through? Or are we reaching a plateau where we seem to be seeing a lot of uh, rehashes of existing equipment um, and as a little side point from that uh, your opinions on how you think the proliferation of free instruments and free plugins has affected the market has that been a good or a bad thing i did actually go over to crackly software and he has got a ton of free vst synths and instruments i don't mark you might be familiar might be interested in his stuff there's, there's all sorts of things i'll just play a little bit of one actually it sounded quite interesting <laughs> That was one of the more kind of normal sounding ones. I mean, there are some really interesting things out there, sort of ring modulated bass synths and all sorts of stuff. And I, I guess that's where he's coming from, because obviously, you know, he's he's an instrument maker. What did we think? Where is the virtual instrument market going? Is it stagnating or are we getting some interesting new stuff coming out? PJ, perhaps you'd like to uh, jump in there. Yeah, and I actually own um, the Effin plugin by um, Crackly Software, and I like that. I like that plugin quite a bit. I don't know. I thought I thought about this long and wide, you know, when when I originally heard the recording by Ian, and I I I don't know where it's going. I mean, I think yes, uh, we are seeing a, a lot of a lot of rehashes of already existing instrumentation, and I think we'll continue to. I think there'll be a lot of companies that will jump into the fray, and there's some big names out there um, that that do it very well. Take existing hardware synths and port them to software or other software concepts and update them. And I think that there's a, uh, I mean, there's a lot of validity to that model. Um, I own several uh, of those emulations and and love them and use them daily. Um, but I think that you know, for instance, the the sampling, the sampling market, the software sampling market. There's so many different manufacturers of software samplers, and I'm I'm not so sure that one differentiates themselves from another. 
uh, so much that we have, you know, a proliferation of choice. We just sort of have uh, a lot of different flavors of the same thing. Ha- Non-Eric, I'm sure you must have an opinion on this because you're kind of hard, both hard and soft, depending on how you're feeling, I'm no doubt. <laughs> Definitely, I think it's getting easier and easier to actually um, program this stuff. I mean, as you know, there's a couple of uh, kind of uh, programs out there that actually let you create your own VST instruments from scratch. Not not as complicated as Reactor, and that actually lets you save it as a discrete um, self-running VST plugin. That makes makes it easy, you know, to do a very simple analog synth as a plugin. And I think uh, as a user, I sometimes feel overwhelmed by the sheer amount of stuff that's out there. But I think we would all uh, agree that if there would be a new synth coming out with with a gorgeous user interface and great sound, we, we yet again would pick it up and buy it. I think it's just a matter. I think uh, it's not as exciting as it was at the beginning. When we all remember when the Pro 5 came out. You know, we're going, oh, look at this, great. You can now do this on the computer. I think the novelty effect has definitely worn out. But I think uh, there's still room for great instruments. And, uh, yeah, there's differences. And I, th- I think uh, especially like the stuff that um, Dave's producing now the G media stuff i think it's underrated because it's great sounding and great uh, uh, great stuff no i think there's still room for more mm. mark you might have an opinion also i mean because you're you kind of tend to ferret around and look for stuff that you know maybe also is freeware i mean do you think the freeware stuff is is is, is assisting or hindering the, the the kind of developer or is it better, easier to make freeware stuff i mean what what do you think um I think it's assisting because I think freeware guys go off in much more experimental directions because they don't have to have a, a commercial market for what they're doing. But yeah. my analogy, I suppose, the whole flavor of plugins is that they're all colors. So when we first got software synths, it's like we went from black and white into color. So it was truly amazing. Like, wow, like we can make you know sound with just a computer without having to plug in an array of synths and then we've sort of gone from 256 colors to thousands of colors and now onto millions of colors so i think it's just a broader palette of sound that we've got available to us and and i think the difference between a photograph taken with thousands of colors or millions of colors might not be you know that discernible to the eye so the same with you know as these things improve it might not be as discernible to us now so the exciting phase is gone but we're going to have a much broader spectrum of things to play with. So I, I still think things will be coming out, and as computers get faster, the underlying processing will get faster and better. And you know, I think Dave Spears talks about optimization a lot, doesn't he? They yeah. spend a lot of time optimizing their plugins, and their plugins, like Dave Spears' company's plugins, sound really good and a lot better than some of the freeware ones. Yeah. Um, but I guess everybody yeah, will eventually get to the point where. You know, everything has that fidelity. So, but it's but it's sort of you know nth degree fidelity. Now we're in the polishing off of you know the final polishing of these things. So. I suppose the one thing is, is you know, when back in the day when a, a, a sort of big synth used to come out, or even now, you know, when they're kind of a thousand, two thousand bucks, there is a, by definition only a limited number of people who can buy and use them. Whereas with the software stuff, you know, you can you can have a hit, and presumably you can actually sell. Many more units than perhaps, you know, a DX7 or an M1 sold because 
you know, it will play most more, many more people can afford it. Yeah. But does it make it harder to have to, to apply them, you know, cause to apply them to, to your own unique sound? I mean, how, how does that work? Uh, first of all, this guy, uh, correctly, uh, has a lot of interesting looking stuff and I look forward to trying some of it. Uh, do you think there's new, you know, do you think there's innovation still happening in that field? Yeah, sure. Well, and first of all, you'll have, uh, con- you'll continue to have emulative, uh, software GUIs and, and attempts at recreating classic gear because people have um, a fondness for nostalgia and they love to look back romantically at things of the old days and say, I wish I had one like that. And so Arturia will re- release a Jupiter sounding synth and it sounds real good, by the way. And, uh, you know, and there will be a market for that. And then there will be these guys like this crackly fellow who's got his own vision of, you know, making his own synths and not copying anybody else's and not hiring the big expensive <laughs> gooey and stuff. And uh, it, I, I think it's, um, I just think it's all good. And it will, and it hopefully will all continue to proliferate. Now, whether or not companies like Apple, by releasing a product like Logic Studio, will to some degree put these little guys in a difficult business position if they're in business that that remains to be seen because when you give away a, you know all of those virtual instruments with the program for 500 bucks and all that other stuff that that makes it hard for these guys to se- certainly to sell anything that's a very good point um, we discussed this uh, with a developer uh, from Vielklang here in berlin in one of my podcasts on muso talk and he feels that the, the the price of logic is kind of discouraging for him because he feels that people will not understand why they should pay the same amount for maybe just a harmonizing plugin. You know, they just kind of making it hard for the smaller companies to actually ask the price they need to ask. Mm. Oh, I think they've really reset the bar, the price performance mm-hmm. bar, and they've made it difficult for people. And I think they knew they were doing it going, you know, coming coming in with this you know stuff like the the harmonizing plugin that you that you mentioned the veal clan guys i mean their stuff is quite it's quite a specialized thing whereas logic studio might appeal to people who you know are into garage band and never really got to this stage before so i mean it's it's a it's a journey isn't it i mean you realize what you need when you know more about it i suppose definitely and i i think also nick you know listening listening to this discussion it it strikes me that um where innovation might start to um, present itself in the next several years is in the interface between the user and the virtual instrument. For instance, I think that there are um, lots of aspects of physical modeling that haven't been taken advantage of simply because the interfaces aren't there for us to take advantage of them. Right. And it, it will be interesting to see, you know, where that goes. And, and, uh, you know, to amend some of my former statements, I, I'm, I'm, with, I'm with Rich entirely. I, I work entirely inside the box right now. I, I don't use any of my hardware, hardware synths anymore. Uh, and it's amazing to me. I mean, I, th- I think about this all the time, how, you know, back in 1999, when I'd, when I'd fire up the studio... It was loading sampler or samples into old Kurzweil boxes, and some samples are taking 20 minutes to load, and you're trying to sync ADAT machines with uh, eight tracks of Pro Tools along with opcode vision and and resetting hardware devices and repatching devices, and it's two hours to get the studio set up to do something you did the day before. 
And now it's, you know, I'm up and running in 10 minutes at the, at the most. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's fantastic. It's amazing. And uh, some of the, the sounds of these software, synth- you know, synths and sample collections are, in some cases, fa- you know, outrageously fantastic. Um, you know, here, here to Dave Spears, his stuff is just amazing. And, and uh, to have access to, uh, to a mini Moog, and to be able to recall all of its settings and and automate all of its settings right inside the box, uh, even if it's even if the uh, quality between the you know the original model and and the software model is uh, in question, I, I I think it's just amazing. I think it outweighs you know it outweighs the disparity you know a hundredfold to be able yeah. to do some of the creative things you can do inside the box with these synths. I agree. I mean, I think you know the thing that's missing, and I think the thing that you know I always bang on about is the the physical relationship with the instruments. I mean, because, you know, I mean, a computer keyboard and a mouse or, and a, a just a sort of MIDI keyboard are not great ways to relate to a kind of something that could should, that used to be so visceral and MIDI controllers ain't quite there yet in terms of, you know, that whole thing. And well, wait a minute. I, I'm quite enjoying my Novation remote SL keyboard with these uh, templates that map to the plugins right. and allow you to allow me to have a filter cutoff knob right there in front of me while I'm playing, or a resonance knob, or all of that. And it's all it all pretty much shows up straight out of the box, and you can easily map the ones that don't. And uh, I'm finding some really good solutions to that are arriving in the low, in the, you know, not terribly expensive hardware market. I would agree. Market. I mean, I'm not saying that there's, there is no solution, but that we haven't quite fully bridged the gap, I suppose, is what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Rich, that's definitely true. For, for software synthesizers, straight-up straight synth emulations or even newer synthesizers where you need a filter cutoff knob or you want control over volume or something like that, that it's there. We, we've got it, and it's getting... <sighs> things like automap from from novation but i think the future you know of, of of physical modeling and controlling you know and drum controllers and things like that you, you can look at something like the zen drum are you are you guys familiar with that yeah Control- we shot something with john emmerich at um, the aes who, who played yeah that. said that's amazing that's that's an absolutely amazing controller for controlling drums and uh you know more more controllers like like that type of thing I mean, do you think people are going to buy those? Though? Because I mean, I, I'm too lazy to do that. I'm, well, I actually, I was, look, I was looking at the Zendrum, and it's about <laughs> um, fifteen hundred bucks, twelve hundred bucks, the cheapest one, something around there. So you can pick them up for several hundred pounds, and they do look, look like mightily well crafted bits of a kit. And John Emmerich did a little thing for us at the end of um, the demo of the BFD bomb um, uh, sound set. And he said it's the most sensitive drum drum controller you ever like to get. And he demonstrated it very ably, and you can kind of see that it's very, very playable. I, I just wanted to add that I think the discussion is somehow a little bit romantic, because I remember in my studio when I was still fiddling around with hardware since none of it, none of them, except I think the MKS8 or anything, had uh, a, a knob for every parameter. So at the end of the day, something like the Waldorf microwave, you would be actually fiddling around on a very small display with only three or four knobs to tweak and trying to edit the, the beast and I think uh, you know that physical relationship was only really great if, if, if the synthesizer really had one parameter and one um, uh, one one knob for each parameter because if it doesn't then I think it's much easier to do the whole thing on the screen. That's a very good point. I think that um, 
In terms of sound, we've got pretty much everything that we want happening in these programs now in terms of plugins for sound, right? And I think that programs like BFD and the thing that Rich Hilton turned me on to, which I've forgotten what it's called, the drumming thing. What's it called, Addictive, Rich? Dr- Addictive Drums by XLN Audio of Sweden. Those are probably a precursor to where we might be going in the future because I think the interaction between man and machine, as you know, we have our sound sets here but but in terms of like kind of the musical expertise that's being put into those plugins i want to see more of that i want to play something on my computer or on a keyboard plugged into my computer or on a guitar plugged into my computer i want the computer to kind of analyze it and send it to a central database somewhere and a bit like my ebay purchases if i buy a tire for my motorbike you know the next week it might say you might be interested in this michelin rounds black thing you know, the following week, if I'm writing music and I've uh, kind of created a style library somewhere of my own playing styles and my own ideas, I'd like something that spat back, you know, you might be interested in this riff and and could help by analysing my the way I play music to bring, you know, me up to the next level as a musician, to not just more, my make sounds you, up make to you the more next like level. You. Yeah. Mm, and that maybe I could learn to play Happy Birthday, which I sadly <laughs> realised that I can't actually play after I listened to you guys last week. Oh, well, <laughs> that's asking kind of a lot. That's like having a kind of um, person, turning your computer into a personal mentor, which is kind of, uh, I don't know if I want it to have that responsibility. Um, I think this conversation is probably getting a little philosophical now, and um, perhaps it's an in- a good indicator that perhaps we're probably nearing the end of our of our broadcast this week, um, if everybody's uh, okay with that. Uh, we've been going a little while. Um, perhaps we should sign off and um, resume for, for more. Uh, actually, next week, I'm not happening next week because it's my daughter's birthday on the Wednesday and we're going out to um, have a big party and stuff. So I'm not going to be, we won't, we won't be doing next week, but the week after we'll be back for Sonic Talk number 64, which um, I don't know. I might find if I, if I can find the sample of that Beatles song might be appropriate. I was born in 1963, actually, so that's an appropriate use of the number 63 for this week. Perfect, and it adds to up to nine. Everything's just it working does, out yes. so well. <laughs> so, uh, Mark Tinley, thank you very much for joining us, and um, please give my regards to your washing machine. Also, you're welcome, and I will. And um, non Eric from Berlin, thank you ever so much for joining us. You're welcome. As ever, it's always a pleasure. Um, Rich Hilton from Connecticut. Thank you. Always nice to be with you, gentlemen. I hope you have a good day ahead of you, because uh, I know we're at the beginning of your day. So uh, have a good day at the office or the studio, wherever you're going to be. Thank you. And same to you, PJ Tracy, Minneapolis. Um, thank you ever so much for joining us again. Thank you. You too. And thanks for another hour of zany, geeky fun. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to our, um, our callers, John Van Eaton and um, Ian Webster from Crackly Software. Yeah, yeah, I love yeah. we have more of those. I love, I loved all that praise. <laughs> we, we won't let it go to our heads. I promise. No, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys, thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. And remember, folks, comments are always welcome. We'll be happy to read them out or play them or however they arrive. Uh, you can email them at, to sonictalk at sonicstate.com. We can just take words or MP3s. Or if you've got Skype, uh, you can call us on Sonic Talk, the handle Sonic Talk. Uh, we've got an answer phone there. Just leave us a message. Uh, we've got Skype in numbers in the US for that. Uh, so dial 312-376-8089 if you're inside the US. Or if the UK is closer or you're in the UK, 0207-870-8616. Remember to dial your country code. 
postcodes before those if you're outside either of those countries. That's US telephone number 312-376-8089, UK 0207-870-8616. Thanks for listening. Sonic State. Not